It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. The 2022 SBC annual meeting will be the first time in more than 40 years at Southern Baptist have held our annual meeting in the great state of California. After the largest crowd we've seen in a generation last year in Nashville, we want to invite you to join us here in Anaheim, California on June 12th through 15th of 2022. We are so excited about this opportunity to join together with messengers from around the country and across our convention as we come together to celebrate what God has done as we cooperate together for the Great Commission. All right, Sandy Rios with you, and you're probably saying to yourself, why is she talking about that again? We just talked about it last Friday with Rod Martin. Well, I'm talking about it because it gives me an excuse to introduce our next guest and to talk to him. Uh, This gentleman has, a lot of you people will be uh, familiar with him because he's really made his mark on this country in the evangelical world, but some of you won't know who he is, and the the, the tie-in here is that he's running uh, to be the head of the Southern Baptist Convention's Pastors Conference, and we'll get into that in a second. And let me restate what we said last week. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest evangelical denomination with something like 13 million members and trains really a third of the uh, uh, seminary students in this country. So it has tremendous impact. And when things go wrong in a denomination, whether it's, you know, uh, the Episcopal Church, which went off the rails years ago, the United Methodists, uh, or Presbyterians now of different branches, it has a ripple effect. It affects us all because we are, after all, those of you that are Christ followers, we are the body of Christ. And so Vodi Bakum joins me this morning, of all things, from Zambia. Good morning, Vodi. Thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning. Actually, it's afternoon, almost evening here. <laughs> oh, I was just going to ask you what the time difference was. I had no idea. What is the time difference? It's... Uh... 4.30 p.m. here. Okay. All right. Well, um, let me just say that if you have not heard of Vodi, let me give an introduction. We're going to chat a little bit because uh, I think he has a he has really made his mark, and he has so many interests, and I just, um, I'm fascinated with his background. He is a, a husband and a father. He's a former pastor. He's an author. He's a professor. He's a conference speaker and a church planter, and he currently serves as the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia. He also is a voice actor. He uh, did the voicing for George Washington Carver in a movie, uh, and um, he's done uh, a lot of other things, too. He is a martial artist who, uh, who competes, and I could go on and on. He's got nine children and a wife of uh, 30 years. 30, 40, did I just reduce it? How long have you guys been married? No, no, no. It's, it's somewhat- It'll be 33 later this month. Okay, all right, okay. Your wife, Bridget. So, Well, Vodi, uh, let's talk first of all about um, such a great— you are Vodi Bakum Jr. I want to know who Vodi Bakum Sr. was. Yeah, it's interesting. My my, uh, my dad and my mom were both uh, California kids, 
Los Angeles kids. Uh, my father was born and raised in Los Angeles. My mother was born and raised in the middle of the Odessa area and came to Los Angeles uh, early on as kind of part of the whole great migration. They met in high school. My mother became pregnant with me when she was a senior in high school uh, or junior in high school. She gave birth to me when she was a senior in high school. Um, they got married because that's what you did back in 1969, right? Um, they stayed married for a very short while. My father went off to pursue a career in professional football, and uh, my mother ended up raising me uh, by herself. Um, I, I always knew my dad, and uh, you know, later on in, in life, um, God really sort of restored a relationship between the two of us. Um, so my father come to faith, and actually got to disciple my father, uh, but he was taken away from us uh, back in 2000. Six died at the young age of fifty-five. So um, that that's that's who he was. You know, isn't that isn't it just like God to give you that restorative moment? And it's not the first time I've heard someone talk about being separated from their father and having a really difficult childhood, and then be re, being reunited later in life, only to have them taken early. But I, I do think it's also interesting too, Vody, in reading your. Uh, your biography here, that you took up a Brazilian jiu-jitsu in 2012 just as uh, an avenue to self-defense, and then you began to compete and found out you had a real talent, and you won the 2014 Pan American Championship. Isn't it interesting that you would... Was your dad alive when that happened? No, no, he wasn't, actually. Uh, he died in 2006, so, um, you know, this, this, was a, this was a while later, and in my early 40s, and, yeah, it's, <laughs> it was an interesting turn in life. And the interesting thing about it is, I, you know, I started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because uh, our oldest son, who's supposed to be the third, called Trey, um, had graduated from high school. We homeschooled our children. And, you know, he had traveled with me full-time for the last four and a half years of his education. I became his full-time teacher. And he had graduated, and I missed him. And we were looking for something that we could do together. And he was interested in martial arts. We found Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I was like a duck who had found water. <laughs> you know, uh, it uh, reminds... Okay, this is, off, I, this is our way of getting acquainted. Let me just say, I think, you know, as believers in Jesus, every interest that we have can lead to evangelizing and also to broadening our understanding of the world and actually uh, giving us a, a, a better way of reaching more people because of our experiences. I have a good friend that's a, a soccer player, international, who's also a pastor, and he could tell you stories. That's how he reached the miners in Rhodesia, uh, the Dutch miners who were completely, uh, really unchurched, but because he was such a great soccer player, that's what they love to do. It built relationships, and he was able to reach a lot of them. Anyway, so I'm, I'm knowing about you. Anyway, I'm I'm guessing that something like that has happened with you also. Um, well, you know, the interesting thing about it for most pastors, by the time you've been a pastor for four or five years, you don't have any non-Christian friends anymore. Your whole life is the church and church people, and so most pastors who've been doing it for a while they don't even know how to relate to non-Christians anymore. And so for me, getting engaged in this, it is competitive, you know, martial art, being part of a team that we would compete together, it was the first time in a long time, I mean, I played football in college, it was the first time since then that I had real friendships with people 
who were non-Christians. And it was an amazing thing in, in my life. It impacted my ministry in tremendous ways. It changed the way I thought about and prepared sermons because I was thinking about, you know, dear friends of mine who didn't share my assumptions. Um, it, it, it's been incredible. Wait, I can't hear you. And I, I wish to see, I can, I can, I've experienced that just because I'm a, because I'm not in ministry, but I am in ministry. Uh, and because I've had such a experience in the secular world of news and politics uh, and, and swum in different fields, it, it I think, equips me uh, much better uh, to reach people and to understand where they're coming from. So are you saying, would you give that advice to pastors listening? That they get involved outside the church in yeah, something? It, you know, I do. A couple of my books, I've, I've mentioned that, how, how important that is for us to be intentional about establishing relationships and, you know, not only establishing relationships, but getting involved in communities where we minister, um, you know, outside of the church. Those things are incredibly important. Yeah. So you, as I understand it, Vodi, you were raised by your single mom. You just described that. And uh, it wasn't a Christian home, right? So the question is, how in the world did you come to Christ? How did that happen? Uh, yeah, so my mother was a, a practicing Buddhist, so I was raised by a single teenage Buddhist mother in South Central Los Angeles, California. Never heard the gospel until my first year university. And uh, a, a Campus Crusade staffer actually came, ironically, to talk to me. I was on the football team, and he had gotten the information that I was part of uh, a Christian group, but I wasn't. I didn't know Jesus from the man in the moon. So he came to talk to me about starting a Bible study with the football team. Uh, ended up realizing that I, I didn't know the Lord at all. Um, and so he started sharing the gospel with me and spent the next two and a half, three weeks um, just building a relationship with me, answering my questions, because I had a lot of questions, um, and, and eventually teaching me how to find answers to those questions myself. Um, so I kind of jokingly tell people that I was being trained apologetics before I was converted, you know. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I first heard the gospel, and that's how I came to faith. Because of your background, huh, I'm guessing again, that you might have a little struggle with the culture of evangelical Christian men. Is that a struggle for you? Yeah, just a tad. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, the reason I ask you that, Vody, my husband is a former FBI agent. And uh, he's a relatively new Christian, and he struggles with that. He doesn't know how to relate uh, to so many men who've been churched all their lives. What what would you say about that? And how how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, it's interesting, and I think it goes back to what we talked about before, and those interests that we have, and the way that we broaden our horizons and our interests. But I think there's another thing that's happened, and I, I would say that especially modern American Christianity, has been incredibly feminized. And for uh, a man's man to come into the average church today is a huge struggle because of the way that we've feminized Christianity and because of the way that we have emasculated men um, in our culture at large um, and it mirrored that in the church. Uh, it becomes very difficult. And so one of the things that I have have striven to do in, in my ministry, in my writing, is to promote biblical manhood uh, and to give a defense and an apologetic for biblical 
everyone benefits when we stay in our lane and act in accordance with our creative purpose. And I'm actually going to transition to our real conversation in this way. I think one of the things that I see, Vody, is um, men, I think, I think God has wired men to fight. And we are in a culture where fighting or objecting or arguing or disagreeing or is so distasteful. And I'll say to men right now, I'll say to men because we're talking about them, that uh, we are not defending uh, principles in the church. We're not defending in the culture. We're not even defending our children. Your thoughts about that? Just in a minute here because we're going to have to take a break. Yeah, I've often said that, you know, the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice, and we don't believe the other 10. <laughs> and anytime you show any kind of, you know, masculine objection or try to debate or, you know, it, it, do anything like that, people accuse you of not being Christian. Um, I, I think if people read the Bible today, uh, they would accuse Jesus of not being Christian because of a number of things that he did that don't fit our current understanding of what a Christian man is. Vody, I don't know if you heard the introduction to my show, but the reason I'm laughing is because when I, I was president of Concerned Women for America, and when I first uh, went to D.C. and met with my staff for the very first time, I gave them a speech on why it was, we are not called to be nice. We are not called to be nice. And I, that's how my show has that, you know, part of that in the opening. And uh, it's very, I get into yeah. a lot of discussions with people because they, what am I talking about? What do you mean don't be nice? But you're echoing exactly my view about that. It is not a fruit of the spirit. It's, uh, it's something that's about our reputation, not about the gospel. But uh, we have to take a break now. And when we come back, let's talk about uh, what's happening at the SBC. Uh, what you're going to be doing in terms of what you're running for, how you see the problems that have evolved over the last several, well, a long time before you came, but uh, the current problems that are developing the SBC and how what the, what the solutions to those problems are. Bodie Bauckham is our guest. We'll be right back after this. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. The independent investigation commissioned by the Southern Baptist Convention concluded that members of the group's executive committee responded with resistance, stonewalling, and even outright hostility to almost two decades of sexual abuse allegations against clergy. According to the report, they kept a secret running list of accused Baptist ministers to avoid being sued, even as the committee publicly claimed it didn't have the authority to create such a list. More than four 400 people on it were believed to be affiliated with the SBC at some point. But the report quotes a May 9th, 2019 internal email where the SBC's then general counsel called the focus on sexual abuse, quote, a satanic scheme to completely distract us from evangelism. Every day is a struggle since I've come forward publicly. 
Hannah Kate Williams filed a lawsuit against the SBC on Friday, alleging that she was physically abused by her own father, a pastor, for years. She says it began when she was as young as four years old and turned into sexual abuse on her eighth birthday. But when she sought help from the SBC leadership, she says nothing ever happened. When I was kicked down, I was called a liar. I was called mentally deranged, incompetent an enemy of God. The report says the SBC used its system of granting churches autonomy to deflect accountability for local offenders. But allegations of abuse go up to the very top, including a sexual assault claim against former SBC president Johnny Hunt, which he denied in a Facebook post Sunday night. What, as a survivor, would you like to see change? I would like to see leaders taking the recommendations of outside experts not as attacks on their beliefs, but as tools to protect those in their care. All right. We talked a lot about that. Sandy Rios back with you last Friday. So let me just cover some turf before I bring Vody back in here. Uh, remember that last year at the Southern Baptist Convention, and that is what we're talking about in case you just tuned in, they're going to be meeting in um, yeah, in Anaheim, California, <laughs> June the 14th through the 15th. That's the annual convention. The, sub, the pastor's conference will be June 12th through the 13th. And the reason this matters is because it is the largest evangelical denomination in the country. And if you're a Christian, you certainly should be concerned about what's happening there. Uh, the last thing we want is for the Southern Baptist Convention to implode. It would, uh, it would harm so much that's happening in seminaries and missions and the... the, the uh, the gospel. I mean, God can, Jesus can survive all of this. I'm not worried about his reputation so much, really. Uh, this has been happening since the, you know, Christianity was found. Since Jesus died on the cross, people have tried to defame and discredit, and it hasn't worked, and I'm not really worried about it, uh, but it does do harm, and it, it harms people's ability or willingness to listen to the gospel, and so we don't want that to happen if we can prevent it, and as God wills, that we should be able to stop it. So the, the last year, this came up at the convention, and they decided to hire this uh, agency out of D.C., which defies explanation to me. I would not hire any agency in D.C. Nevertheless, they came out with a report, and they claimed that there's a list of something like a secret list, they, they characterize it, of 700-and-something pastors who've uh, acted out sexually, and um, like it's this huge uh, epidemic of uh, sexual exploitation which I don't think is true. Based on our conversation last week, it sounds like the staff at the SBC had uh, done a Google search of pastors and other people in ch for Baptist churches who'd been arrested. So this is public information, and in many cases, the churches acted. They, like, they called the police, had them arrested, took the pastor out of the pulpit. So that's really, I think, the story that's not told. But the convention is getting ready to meet again, and this uh, st this. Uh, report just came out, and you could see the CBS News uh, anchor was enjoying telling that story, as they will enjoy fleshing all of this out. And it seems that some people inside this Southern Baptist Convention are enjoying this, too, for whatever reason. Maybe I'm mischaracterizing that. And so with that, let me invite Vody Bachum in. He's a pastor. He's running this year for the to lead the SBC Pastors Conference uh, in, for the Southern Baptist Convention. And Vody, I've said a lot of things, so let me just be quiet and let you respond to the report and maybe even to some of the things I've said. Yeah, the, the report is it's saddening, it's, it's disheartening, it's, it's, uh, it's infuriating at, at times. Um, whenever things like this are happening, I think all of us are 
are rightly um, saddened and angered. Uh, but I think you've also made an important point, and that is that, you know, these reports include, um, number one, a very long period of time, and 43 to 45,000 churches. And it also includes a number of instances, I'm glad you pointed this out, where churches did the right thing, and the reason that this information was known was because the churches did the reporting. Uh, my sending church um, had an instance where they, you know, had to do that kind of reporting uh, a couple of years ago, and they did that. It was exemplary. The way that they handled it was exemplary. The way that they handled, um, you know, the victim was exemplary. And it happened outside the church, by the way. Um, and so I, I think you're absolutely right to, to point that out. I think another thing that needs to be pointed out is that people need to understand what the Southern Baptist Convention is. We use the term denomination because that's what people understand. The SBC is technically not a denomination. It's a convention of confessing free churches. Um, there, there's not a hierarchy of authority uh, above local churches. Um, that's a blessing and a curse, right? <laughs> it makes some things very yes. difficult. And so when, when, people, when people talk about this issue, they're talking about it as if the SBC is, you know, an Episcopal organization where there are people at the top who have authority over people at the bottom, where, where people at the top, you know, are, are appointing pastors or whatever. Uh, local SBC churches uh, appoint their own pastors. Uh, local SBC churches are responsible for, um, you know, discipline within their, their churches. So that makes this a lot more complicated than people think. And a lot of people are saying, you know, well, they just need to, you know, establish these boards and establish these, you know, um, you know, these, these bodies to, to oversee and, and overlook. But they, they need to understand that, again, this is a convention of confessing free churches, and it's not that simple. Um, these issues must be addressed. In many instances, these issues are being addressed. But in the instances where they're not, um, they need to be. But they need to be addressed within the context of uh, SBC polity. You know, I like to think of it this way, Vody. I, I think of like the Constitution and how the founding fathers kind of laid out the the structure for our original country, and that was that the federal government was only going to oversee things that the colonies had in common, had a mutual interest, like roads and uh, bridges and you know, uh, fighting wars, but otherwise the colonies and later the states had autonomy. That's the 10th Amendment, that they could run their own government. The federal government was to be small. And so the, uh, the, um, the alternative to that is to have a huge overseer who comes in and can't possibly know or understand the details of your circumstances and force upon you their way or, or make a cookie-cutter decision that is not appropriate in every state. So I think that applies to the Southern Baptist churches as well. Is that, your, is that something like your position on this? Yeah, it is. And one of the things, well, two things. One, I think people believe, people don't believe in sin. Uh, people believe that our problem is not that we are sinners who sin. Our problem is that we don't have enough oversight and government. Like, that's the answer for everything. 
We need more oversight. We need more government. And if you believe that, then, you know, the church with the most oversight and the most government is the Roman Catholic Church. They're the epitome of a top-down organization with maximum authority and oversight. And they had a sex scandal that dwarfs anything that the SBC is dealing with right now. So regardless of the type of government that you have, you, we, we are not going to end people sinning against one another. And what we have to do is learn how to respond to that appropriately. And one of the issues has been, you know, number one, there's been cowards in, in many of these instances. Secondly, there's been ignorance in many of these instances. And then thirdly, there's been this lack of understanding of jurisdictional authority in churches not recognizing that when you're dealing with a crime issue, that's not the church's jurisdiction. That's the state's jurisdiction. We don't prosecute crimes in the church. Um, and so I, I think there are a number of issues all wrapped up here that that need to be addressed, and I think will be addressed within the SBC. Let me just give a little more background here, if I could, because this, look, I, I don't think that you, I, I should, I'll say this for you, and I, I don't think there's going to be any argument on this. It's not that uh, I personally, I can say it as a woman, but it's not that we ha- are not interested in sexual abuse at all. I, I, I made the point last week, and I should make it again. The problem is it's not just women who are deeply injured by sec- legitimate sexual abuse, but it is men who are injured by careless accusations. And that's why we cannot be uncareful, and we can't use this as a bludgeon. It has to be handled with wisdom and care. And I think that's... Uh, I think that's what God would have us do. There is a new, like, uh, there, there are factions, of course, and the Southern Baptist Church has had them for years. I was a Southern Baptist for years. I grew up Southern Baptist, was saved uh, through the ministry of a, at a revival at a Southern Baptist Church. My parents became Christians in a Southern Baptist Church, so I'm just giving you my background there. But because I uh, grew up in the church, I saw a lot of different factions. Uh, there was always a problem. There was always, it was always difficult to stay orthodox on scripture. There was always a battle. When I was a girl, it was on the virgin birth. My, our pastor didn't believe in the virgin birth, Vody. And he talked to my mother. I thought my mother was gonna have wow. a heart attack. Yeah, so, uh, so I mean, this is, this is, and so then there was a uh, conservative meaning, a biblically-based sound uh, commitment to the, the touristic teachings of the word of God. There was a resurgence and that changed everything. And now there's been a resurgence back the other way. So let me read this. As a, as a response to that, an organization has sprung up called the Conservative Baptist Network, of which Vody is a part, and uh, so is uh, uh, Tom Askell, who was our guest last week. Tom is running for president. Vody's running for, to have the, uh, the, uh, the, ba- the pastor's conference. And they made a statement. They said that um, they're blasting the current leaders for abandoning biblical truth and embracing radical feminism and race Marxism. Uh, they say that... Um, we believe God is watching, that he, has, he alone defines our terms and sets our agenda, and God is not woke. Your thoughts on what's been happening as you've watched it unfold, and I guess the real question would be, what, what happened that got you activated, where you said, I, this is too much, and you started fighting back? Yeah, it's interesting. For the last seven years, I've been serving here in Osaka, Zambia. And, you know, I, I'm back in the U.S. several times a year uh, for preaching tours and things of that nature. And, you know, I wrote a book that came out last year, uh, 
think that ideology matters. And one of the things that, you know, our adversary, both the devil and our adversary, radical Marxists, um, love to do is to distract us from fundamental truths and get us chasing, you know, these fires that we need to put out and compromising on fundamental truths in the name of responding to emergencies. And so what I am encouraging is that we think biblically and carefully about every one of these aspects. Um, I want to see Tom Askell as president of the Southern Baptist Convention because he thinks biblically and he thinks carefully and he is not distracted by, you know, these 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 emergencies, these fires that, that pop up all over the place. Um, but he is a man who has stayed the course and who will stay the course. Um, and that's really why I'm involved. So I mean, I, I've got enough on my plate, right? I got nine kids. Sounds like it. Still at home. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm serving as, as, as a dean and a professor here. I'm trying to, you know, write books and, you know, do a bunch of other things. I mean, I, I don't, I don't need, uh, another title. I don't need another position. But I believe the SBC is in trouble. And I believe one of the things that men do when they see trouble is step up and answer the call. Yeah, which takes us back to that biblical manhood thing. I want to read something to you. This is from uh, Christianity Today. By the way, that's my home turf. I was I, I grew I raised my kids in Wheaton, which is right there. I used to know lots of people at Christianity Today and somehow or the other, at some point, they started moving to the left. But this is how they characterize it. A group of vocal critics in the SBC sees attempts to address racial injustice or other social ills as antithetical to the Christian gospel in messaging that parallels that of Republican leaders and former President Donald Trump. Now, that would be you, be you Vody. You'd be one of those people. So uh, let's, have, let's have you comment on that when we return uh, if we could, and maybe we'll get into some of those issues and make the case for why you see them as unbiblical. My guest is Vody Bakum. The uh, Southern Baptist Convention is coming up June the 14th and 15th. And let me repeat what Rod Martin always says. Uh, there are messengers, if you're part of a Southern Baptist church, it uh, would be a good thing to go. Because you, if you're listening to this show and you listened last Friday, you are informed more than most people in the pews. It would be good for you to go and make your voice heard. There's something you could do about what's happening with the SBC. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Are we really going to root out the systemic racism and institutional racism? The institutional racism at the root of this injustice. He understands why systemic racism has got to be addressed. So what we know is those rates that you have just repeated are because of issues like systemic racism. The, the Iowa caucus is essentially the perfect example of systemic racism. Every single white person upholds these systems and structures of white supremacy. Systemic racism isn't something that you get to cherry pick and decide when you want to apply it, it means the system at its core is rotten. Can you give us the construct of how you will deconstruct the racism that was built into the roadways? Black woman graduated from Harvard and graduated from Harvard Law School, even in spite and 
uh, of sort of the institutional racism, the systemic racism. So we can confront the institutional racism that this country uh, lives with. What's what's really appalling is, uh, is Lindsey Graham who says that there is no systemic racism in this country. American racism is not simply uh, the product of uh, individual biases, right? But is actually embedded in the structure of American institutions. That is, by the way, not a theory, that is a fact. Glenn Youngkin rode a wave of fragile feelings to victory in Virginia last week on the boogeyman of critical race theory. It's a boogeyman. Critical race theory was a lie. It's pretty hard to campaign against someone who's promising to eliminate things that don't exist. Critical race theory, which isn't real. The National Education Association, the country's largest teachers union, adopted a resolution last week at its annual meeting to support the teaching of critical race theory. All right, that's a media montage. You figured that out. And that's uh, critical race theory. Do I need to tell anyone that that is in the headlines almost constantly? My inbox is filled with stories about critical race theory being taught in schools, parents going to school boards complaining black and white about what they're teaching the children uh, to think of each other in terms of race and to attribute to all white students racism and hatred, really. And so um, it's interesting then that this whole issue of critical race theory showed up at the Southern Baptist Convention. And I want to ask Vody Bauckham about that. He's our guest this morning, and he is running actually for to head the pastor's conference for the Southern Baptist Convention. By the way, he's the author of Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. So, Vody, we hear that in the headlines, we see it in the headlines, and now the Southern Baptists are beginning to, at least last year, sort of embrace a version of that. Explain what they did and why you're concerned. Yeah, it was the year before last when uh, there was a resolution, Resolution 9, on critical race theory and intersectionality. The resolution was originally written by a California pastor who wrote a resolution against critical race theory. This is very important for your listeners to understand. Yeah. And so when a resolution... I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, No, I didn't... You go ahead, please. Okay. No. So what, what, you, what you need to understand is when a resolution comes to the resolutions committee, there's three possibilities. One, you ignore it. Two, you bring it up for a vote. Or three, you can change it and bring it up for a vote. So the resolutions committee changed that resolution from this pastor in California that was against critical race theory and turned it into a resolution in favor of critical race theory. Then they brought it to the floor. And, of course, the chair of the Resolutions Committee was a black professor at our flagship seminary. Um, And he's bringing this resolution that his committee has altered to be in favor of critical race theory and intersectionality. And long story short, the SBC voted to approve this resolution that was in favor of critical race theory and intersectionality. Ironically, several months later, the, the, the six presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention came out with a statement, you know, against critical race theory and intersectionality. I say ironically because they were all there at the convention and nobody spoke up. And, and, the, and the reason they didn't was because they didn't want to be called racist for addressing this issue while a black professor from our flagship seminary was promoting it from the floor. 
And, and so this is so incredibly convoluted. Mm-hmm. It's so incredibly deceptive. That statement from Christianity Today, you know, people who are talking about systemic racism and them, they're talking about, you know, racial injustice. Nobody ever defines systemic racism. Nobody ever defines racial injustice. What your listeners need to know is that terminology, racial injustice, it's a Marxist dog whistle. America is one of the least racist, multi-ethnic countries in the world, full stop. And people need to recognize that these phrases, these, these, this terminology is being used to divide us. The reason we have to talk about systemic racism is because actual racism has become so rare in the United States of America. There is no place that I'd rather be a black person. The safest, most prosperous, freest black people in the history of the world are black people in America. That's why people are dying to get in, and nobody, no matter how much they're complaining, they're not trying to get out. Vodian, I think when we assess, and this is this is like very elementary for you as a pastor, but I have to say to my listeners, when we try to assess these principles and we try to think through the grid of Scripture, of course, the thing that jumps out at me is that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. Uh, there's neither Scythian or whatever the thing was. In other words, God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. This whole business of looking at people, at seeing their color, and treating people differently or attributing evil to people on either side because of their color is the antithesis of the teachings of Jesus. Yeah, it most certainly is. But you need to understand that this is about power. Yes. You, you've got to understand that this whole idea of dividing people is this, this Marxist ideology that, you know, looks at everything through this oppressor oppressed paradigm. This is about power, pure and simple. And when we talk about systemic racism, we talk about now we have to talk about changing systems. How do we change systems? Well, we change systems by people giving up power, giving up power to whom? Giving up power to me. That's the end game of all of this. It's about power. Yes, there's no question about that. But I think people have to hear it because they don't look. People don't want to believe what you and I know to be true, Vody. It's a frightening time. And there is a Marxist movement amongst us that's gaining speed moment by moment, day by day. And I have to say, the question then begs, uh, people in the SBC pushing this, pushing feminism. Uh, actually, I always say the irony of that uh, Christianity Today quote is because that's what I've said often about, I, I'll pick on Russell Moore because I pick on him a lot. He always accused uh, uh, conservatives, in the conservatives from my viewpoint, of reflecting the political whims of the Republicans. But the truth is that the, the woke movement is absolutely reflecting the platforms of the left in almost every respect. So it could be a political motivation, but also it could be worse. How could a Christ follower not understand that critical race theory is antithetical to Christian teaching? How could they miss that unless they had another agenda? Yeah, absolutely, they have another agenda. What people are doing now is they're saying on the one hand, no, 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 we reject critical race theory. 
But then they use the terminology of critical race theory, racial injustice, systemic racism, structural racism, right? Um, this whole idea of these forms of oppression, um, you know, whiteness and, and, you know, so on and so forth. So what they do is they, they, they take the name of critical race theory because now people know what it is, right? And just like your montage showed, at first, critical race theory was a boogeyman. Critical race theory doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden, you know, here you got the, the, the National Teachers Association that's, you know, saying, you know, we're going to we're going to promote the teaching of critical race, uh, race theory and, and critical race theory. Critical race theory is just, you know, accurate teaching about America's history as it you know, relates to race and so on and so forth. So, again, when they're pushed into the corner, when we call them uh, on their deception, they just pivot. But they pivot to another version of the same lie, and that's what that 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 CT quote was all about: pivoting to another version of the same deception. I want to read something. This is the uh, a forward quote in your book. It's by Elizabeth Rundle Charles, and she says, "It is the truth which is assailed in any age, which tests our fidelity. It is to confess we are called, not merely to profess." If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. Expand on that, Bodhi. I love it. Tell them what you're talking about, what she's talking about. Yeah, th- this is where the war is. This is where the enemy is attacking. You know, take the picture of a soldier, right? And, and the war is raging, you know, in front of him. And, and instead of going to where the, the battle is the loudest and the fiercest, he turns around and runs somewhere else in order to fight where it's easier and where the challenge is less threatening. That's not a faithful soldier. And I think right now, this front is the place where we're being attacked. This whole Marxist ideology. Um, and, and first, it's race Marxism, you know, as has been coined. You know, this idea of the oppressor-oppressed paradigm, racial injustice, anti-racism, you know, that was the front. But now it's what I like to call gender Marxism, right? Now it's, you know, we don't know what a woman is. We don't know what a man is, right? It's the same ideology. And what Christians have to understand is that this whole, you know, Marxist social justice ideology views Christianity as the epicenter of oppression. Yes, they do, and that's why they're coming. I always tell people they are not immune. They may be trying to keep their head down right now, but it, they won't. the left will not allow that. They will not allow you to be neutral. You might as well fight now while you have a chance to stop it than keeping your head down because they're coming after everyone. And the people that are the freest are the ones that are bold and steady and never equivocate. You know, I, I've been in D.C. for a long time, Bodie. I can tell you lots of stories about equivocating. It's like compromise is the law of the land in D.C. 
And people are always looking for the easy way. And then they tell themselves, yeah, but I did that. I sponsored that, but I did this right. And I see them not willing to pay the price. And really, it's the same thing here, isn't it? Just not willing. One one other thing I want to say, I'll make this quick if I can. One thing I've observed is a lot of these apostate preachers or speakers will start with like like 90% of their sermon or speech is accurate and 10% is a little off. And then, and you, if you're not really listening carefully, you're not grounded in scripture, you don't quite, you know, you don't even notice it. And then more of it becomes to be, you just start twisting. The worm starts to turn and they they reveal themselves, but it takes a long time and they pull a lot of people in uh, before they're done. I view, I view Russell Moore as one of those kinds of people. Um, how do you, how do you, would you counsel people to identify and be careful of that happening? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. One is we have to rally around people who hold firmly and fiercely to the scriptures, firmly and fiercely to the text. And secondly, we have to rally to people who do that in ways and in areas that bring them under attack and do it in spite of that. All right. Well said. The convention's coming up. It's June 14th to the 15th in Anaheim, California. It's not too late, I don't think. For you to be a messenger, Vody Bakum has been our guest. He's running to head the SBC Pastors Conference. Can you imagine how powerful that would be under his leadership? But Tom Askell is running for president. They are the pick of the conservative wing of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I wanted you to hear what they had to say. And Vody, it's been a real pleasure. By the way, his book is called Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming catastrophe, but not if we have anything to say about it, right, Fody? No catastrophe if God gives us, uh, graces us with victory on stopping this. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. <laughs>